Stand to our feet, put our hands together, and receive Pastor Raymond Woodward of Capital Community Church, Fredericton, New Brunswick. God bless you, sir. We're honored that you're here. Praise the Lord, everybody. Would you lift up that praise to the Lord in a great way, in a great shout, how wonderful Jesus is. How wonderful Jesus is. Thank you so very, very much for honoring your pastor the way that you did this morning. Um, I am definitely not here because you need help in the preaching department. My goodness. Um, you know, I, I have the spiritual gift of Google. And it's a wonderful spiritual gift because you can spy on friends and churches and preachers all around the world. It's a wonderful thing. And I just happened to watch the message, The House of Flesh, from this past Wednesday night. Originally preached 25 years ago by a 15-year-old. That would be on the level of many general conference messages I've heard. You are truly blessed with a great man of God and a stellar first family that serves you in this church. And uh, Pastor Urshan, I'm just grateful and highly blessed just to be here. I would have come if he had just said, I want you to come to service and listen to me preach and we'll go hang out and talk. I would have come. Brilliant, brilliant mind an anointed messenger of the Lord, and our fellowship is grateful to you for sharing your pastor with the apostolic church around the world. Thank you for being that kind of a mature church that realizes it's bigger than just about us. God bless you this morning. Uh, well, I want to get right to the word of the Lord, and uh, I want to take you back to the opening chapters of the word of God. I'm not going to take a text as we're standing. I will uh, ask you to stand just for one more moment, and then we're going to pray and get right into the word. What an exciting privilege it is to be here with you and see all that the Lord is doing. And I want to tell you that your Bible, there is nothing incidental or accidental in the word of God. Every word, every phrase, every turn of a phrase, every term, every picture or foreshadowing, it's all there for a reason. And God instructs us even through the stories of the Word of God. And I'm praying that God will speak uh, profoundly and personally this morning to somebody here. Because here's what I know. I can't help you with very much, but the Word of God can help you with everything. And so here's what I would ask you to do before we're seated. If you would just um, lift up your hands and then lift up your voice. Because your voice is the center of spiritual warfare in your life. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And just for a moment, would you just fill the atmosphere with praise that anticipates what God's going to do for us here this morning. Lives are going to be changed and eternities altered and hearts encouraged and I believe addiction can be broken and bondage can be broken because we're in the presence of the preached Word of God. We're in the living, moving, manifest presence of the Almighty God. 
I worship you today, Jesus. There's no one like you. There's no one higher than you. There's no one greater than you. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in this service this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. In the opening chapters of the Word of God, we are told about the origin of everything. We're told about the origin of our world. We're told about the origin of the animals, the origin of the human family. And uh, while much of it is, is very inspiring, there's some of it that's a little tragic. We're told in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis that there came a point where Adam and Eve had a son. She conceived and bare Adam's firstborn. His name was Cain. She said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And then she conceived again, and the secondborn son of Adam came into the world. His name was Abel. And the Bible becomes very specific here. It says that Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a tiller of the ground. So these boys grow up, they have different occupations, they have different interests. And Abel, the younger boy, he's a keeper of the sheep. He's a shepherd. He knows what it is to raise lambs. He knows what it is, the, the cycles of, of raising livestock. His brother Cain is a different sort. He is a tiller of the ground. He's a farmer. Cain knows what it is to plant seed in the ground and uh, till the ground, hope for rain, pray for good conditions. And he knows if he can get that seed in the ground early enough and often enough, he'll have a great harvest. And then we're told in the process of time that God asked those boys for an offering. Now we have no doubt, not even the slightest doubt, what kind of offering God asked for. Because the Bible tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And it is the blood that makes atonement for sin. And so we know without doubt that God asked for an offering that would involve blood. We have no idea exactly why. Scripture is silent on this point. Exactly why Cain would not humble himself. Go to his younger brother Abel and say, I need to buy a lamb from you. I need to uh, take a lamb from you. Uh, could I borrow a lamb for this sacrifice? We have no idea why he wouldn't, but he didn't. He came with his own idea of a sacrifice. He came with uh, just some vegetables gathered from his garden. They were probably more than presentable. Uh, they were probably something of some value to him. But you see, it was a man-made idea of atoning for the offering that God demanded. And so God did not receive that offering. He was not pleased. Abel, in the meantime, he goes and he takes a lamb from his flock and he offers that lamb, sheds its blood. And God has respect to Abel and to his offering, but not so with Cain. Now we have a very awkward situation because God's angry with Cain and Cain's angry with God and this is not going to turn out very well for Cain. And, and they have a conversation and the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? Cain, if you would just do what I say, if you would just do well, you would be accepted. It wouldn't be a problem. Cain, you brought your own idea of an offering, of a sacrifice to me. Can I tell you that there are still many people today that bring their own idea of religion, their own idea of goodness, their own idea of righteousness, their own idea of what is acceptable to God, and then they get very frustrated when God won't receive it. 
but God doesn't receive it. God is under this uh, impression that he's almighty. He's under this impression that since he created everything, including all of us, that he has some kind of a right to tell us what we should bring him if we want to worship him. And so Cain is angry at God and God is angry at Cain. And God gives Cain a, a warning. He said, Cain, if you won't listen, if you won't do well, sin is lying at the door. Sin is crouching, ready to pounce on you. And it's going to be troublesome for you. Now, Cain didn't listen to God. Because we read this beginning in Genesis 4, verse 8. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where's Abel, your brother? Now, when God asks a question, it is not because he needs information. When God asks a question, it's because he's trying to get you to consider the answer so you will understand where you are. And he says to God, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? And then God speaks these words that ring with prophecy to Cain. He said, what have you done, Cain? You don't understand what you just did. The voice of your brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now, Cain, you're cursed from the earth because the earth opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And it's changing right now, Cain. From now on, when you till the ground, when you go back to your field and your farm, the ground will not henceforth yield to you its strength. And you will become a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, forever seeking something that you don't have here. Now that's an, a, a little story, it's tragic, but it doesn't seem like it would be much more than that until you take into account the Almighty God who gave His Word through anointed vessels. And even in the opening chapters of the Word of God, there is this powerful and profound and beautiful picture painted because you have these two boys. They grow up quite different. One is a tiller of the ground. One is a keeper of the sheep. Cain, he works over here in the farm. He, he knows what it is to plant seed and wait for harvest. He knows what it is to hope for favorable conditions and to tend soil. He knows all about that. His younger brother, Abel, the second born, he's not at all like that. He works with sheep. He, he, tills the, the, he, he tends the sheep and he lets them grow. And then it is the nature of sacrifice that every once in a while he loses one of his prize animals to God. That's Abel. We're told very specifically, nothing's incidental or accidental in your Bible. We're told very, very specifically that there came a day when Cain, the firstborn son of Adam, left his territory, the farm, and he went to the territory of Abel, who was the secondborn son of of Adam. This isn't accidental. This isn't an incidental occurrence in your Bible. Here's what happened. When the firstborn son of Adam walked into the territory of the secondborn son of Adam, the firstborn son of Adam with wicked hands lifted up some kind of weapon and he killed Abel, the second son of Adam, and buried his body in the ground. And he walked away and he thought, there, that's the end of that. But something shifted in the supernatural realm at that moment. And in heaven, something just vibrated through the heavenlies. And God spoke and said, wait a minute, I can hear Abel's innocent blood crying out from the ground. You can't hide your sin, King. 
Now, those of you that are Bible lovers and scholars, and there are so many of you in this congregation, you already know where we're going. Because you know in Scripture that Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. And humanity is referred to as the first Adam. So you know where this leads. You see, there came a day when Jesus, the second Adam, left the halls of heaven and the streets of gold, and he came to the territory of the first Adam, humanity. And while the second Adam, Adam was in the territory of the first Adam. Mankind lifted up wicked hands and we killed the Savior of the world, nailing him to a cross. But when his blood left his body and dripped down that old rugged cross and touched the soil of a sin-cursed planet, all of a sudden in heaven, something shifted and heaven said, wait a minute, I can hear blood crying out from the earth. I've got great news for you this morning. That blood is still speaking today on behalf of every believer, on behalf of every child of God. The Bible says in Romans 8 verse 3, what the law could not do. See, the law was too weak through the flesh. It couldn't fix it. You can keep a whole bunch of rules and regulations and requirements, but it just doesn't have any internal effect. But when the law couldn't do it, here's what did help it. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and sending him for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He shut down the power of sin over us. Isaiah saw what looked like a tragedy. Isaiah 53, very familiar passage. He looks ahead through the waves and the mountain peaks and the the fog of prophecy and he sees something he probably had no context for. It's so tragic and terrible. He said, he is despised and rejected of men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We didn't even want to look on it. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But it wasn't an accident. He wasn't a murder victim. He wasn't just a martyr. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And then Isaiah gets so anointed, he jumps from the past tense into the present tense, and he says, and with his stripes, we are healed. Later, Peter will write in his epistle, he'll say, by his stripes, you were healed. See, it's past tense. It's already accomplished through the blood of Calvary. This is why our elders taught us something so powerful. I love your pastor because I told him last night, he's a bridge builder between the elders that he esteems and the younger men that he mentors. And I'm so grateful for men like him. Our elders taught us something that we cannot forget. It is not just part of our heritage. It is part of our protection. It is not just part of our legacy. It is part of our spiritual warfare. 
The elders taught us when you get in trouble, when you get in danger, when the enemy is coming in on every side, don't you run, don't fall down and collapse. You stand your ground, square your shoulders, and plead the blood because the blood is so powerful that it can push the enemy out of your life. When you get in trouble, plead the blood. When you get in danger, plead the blood. I worship you, Jesus. God speaks to Cain. He said, I can hear your brother's blood. It has a voice. It's talking to me from the ground. Now, with your human ear, you can't hear the blood, which is really good because we'd be very distracted. But if you go to your physician and they take an instrument called a stethoscope and they put it here or they put it here, they can actually hear your heartbeat or your pulse, which in reality, they're hearing your blood move. But if you could have the ear of God, God said, I can hear more than blood moving. I can hear blood speaking. So, so, so just let me set this up. Cain is the first son. He's like the first Adam, humanity, who was sinful. But Abel is the second son. He's like Jesus, the second Adam, who shed his blood. You say, well, I think you're pulling that a little out of proportion. I don't think so. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. And that's such a privilege. We are living souls. We have emotions. We are able to enjoy things. We're able to live life and be happy and fill with joy. We're able to feel sorrow and pain. We are living souls. But the last Adam, he was everything that we are, yet something else in addition. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. There was something in Jesus Christ that was more than just a prophet, a rabbi, a good teacher, or even a miracle worker. That was almighty God inhabiting a body of flesh. The second Adam, the last Adam, was made a quickening spirit. Now that's wonderful and it's troublesome at the same time. Because if he's a quickening spirit, I have no way to achieve that. Oh, except the Bible says in the epistles of Paul, if the spirit that raised Christ from the dead, if it ever gets in you, if you ever have it inside of you, it'll quicken your mortal body. So there's a way to get Jesus inside of you, and it's called the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It changes everything. Are you glad for the Holy Ghost? The Holy Ghost comes to us because of what Jesus accomplished on Calvary. Verse 47, the first man is of the earth, earthy. Turn to your neighbor, say you're earthy sometimes. If that's your spouse, don't enjoy that too much. You might pay for it later. The first man, he's earthy because he's from the earth. But the second man, he's the Lord from heaven. Now, the apostle Paul, he, he loves all of this. And Paul is so profound and so deep. He's just amazing. And in the second half of Romans chapter 5, he gets uh, all up in this, the two Adams. Look at this. Romans 5 verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death came by sin, and then death passed upon all men so that all have sinned. See, see that's Paul. It's like 
he presents us this tragic chain reaction. He paints us this picture with the first man, Adam, standing at the head of a long, endless line of humanity. And as far as you can see into the distance are all Adam's descendants, his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, all the way down to today. And Paul paints this picture of the first Adam, and because of his sin... Sin entered into the human bloodstream. It entered into the human psyche. It entered into the human existence. And it passed from Adam until every man and woman ever born is a sinner. See, people see things backwards sometimes. People say things like, well, I've committed a bunch of sins, so I guess that's why God sees me as a sinner. That's not true. In fact, that's backwards. You were born a sinner, and that's why you've committed sin. So it doesn't matter if you've committed a hundred sins or just one sin. You did that because you were born a sinner. And it's not your actions that got you in trouble with God. It's your sinful nature that you were born with. It's in every member of the human race. Now notice this. Paul's not saying you were like Adam. He's saying you were in Adam. When Adam stood in the Garden of Eden and he failed, he was your legal representative in the sight of God. When he sinned, it was like you sinned. He represented you. God created him to represent you. Now, in America, we say, oh, now that's not fair because I didn't vote for Adam. And that's a problem. I don't like your system, God. It's not fair. If I'd have been in the Garden of Eden, we wouldn't be in this mess. If you'd have been in the Garden of Eden, who knows where we might have ended up. God created Adam to be a legal representative. We don't like that system because America is the greatest democracy on the planet and we vote on everything. We like to vote. We like to have our say. And really behind that, we like to have our way. And so we don't like God's system. I don't think it's fair, God, that one man could sin and plunge the entire human family into sin. I don't think that's fair. You might like God's system a little better if you thought about this for a second. If it is legally possible in God's system for one man to sin and plunge the entire human race into sin, then if it were possible for a second Adam to come who never sinned, who never messed up, who never failed, if that was possible, then it would be possible for that second Adam to pass holiness and righteousness and godliness onto everybody who would follow him. So here's your life. You gotta do everything you can to get yourself out of this line and get behind Jesus over here. He's the second Adam. <laughs> now I like God's system a little bit better. Because if the first Adam's disobedience became my disobedience, then the second Adam's obedience can become my obedience. That's exactly why Jesus came. Look at this. Paul can't stay off this. Romans 5.15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, it has abounded unto many. So here's how God's system works. Adam was disobedient, but Jesus was obedient. Adam broke the law, but Jesus fulfilled the law. 
Adam brought offense, but Jesus brought grace. Adam brought bondage, but Jesus brought freedom. Adam brought death, but Jesus brought life. Adam brought condemnation, but Jesus brought justification. You might like God's system a little better if you just meditated on it for a little bit. The first Adam, he cursed us, but the second Adam, he's blessed us. The first Adam hurt us, but the second Adam, he healed us. The first Adam put us out, but the second Adam, he brought us in. The first Adam put us down, but the second Adam, he has lifted us up. The first Adam put us on the road to hell, but the second Adam has put us on the road to heaven. I'm glad I am in Christ. (laughs) And by the way, all of you wonderful Pentecostal people, what is up with this? We've given the apple bad press for years. We pass out Sunday school papers to little kids scribbling their colors all over, Adam and Eve leaving the garden, holding a half-eaten apple. It looks like Snow White or something. Who told you that was an apple? The Bible doesn't say it was an apple. But it does give us a clue. Because when Adam and Eve sinned against God in the Garden of Eden and they grasped in desperation for a covering for their nakedness, what was it that their hands fell on? Fig leaves. It wasn't an apple. It was a fig tree. Now, you don't have to believe that because everybody's entitled to be wrong. But the old Jewish sages, they agree with me, they speak several times in the Midrash to quote the fig leaf which brought remorse to the world. So it was a fig tree that got us all in trouble. And that helps me a lot. Because there's this little story in the Gospels that always irritated me. It confused me a little bit. Because it just seems so out of character for Jesus. Jesus is with his disciples. It's the last week of his earthly ministry. They're staying at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. And every day they get up and they walk that five miles into Jerusalem. And they participate in the events of Passover. And that's the the week that Jesus cleansed the temple. And there's so many things that happen there. But on this one morning, they're walking up the road. And Jesus sees this fig tree. This innocent little fig tree. Just standing there minding its own business. And I think it's Mark's gospel which tells us that the time of figs was not yet. Now, now, so this always messed me up. Because Jesus goes over, rustles his hand around the branches, there's no figs, and he goes, you're cursed. And the next morning, those brilliant disciples, they come by and it goes something like this. Peter looks at the fig tree and goes, duh. It's withered up, Jesus. It's like, yeah. Yeah. That always troubled me. If he created, Jesus is God, if if he created that fig tree and told it when to grow figs and when not to grow figs, and it's not the time of figs, why does he curse a fig tree for doing exactly what he created it to do? I never understood that. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute. Jesus, 
God manifest in flesh is walking up that dirty, dusty road on his way to Jerusalem where within a few days he will be lifted up on a tree to solve forever the curse that has infected this planet. And he sees the same kind of tree that got Adam and Eve into trouble in the garden. This time, the second Adam walks over to the tree. The first Adam ate of the tree. The second Adam, he couldn't find anything to eat. And then he says, your curse, I'm on my way to reverse the curse that has plagued humanity. That's why Jesus can deliver you from drug addiction. He already fixed the curse. That's why he can restore your marriage. He already fixed the curse. That's why he can do that. I wish you'd just lift up a, lift up praise to him. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Uh, go ahead and be seated. I'm, a, I'm almost finished, and that really wasn't part of the sermons. So here, here in a nutshell, the first Adam, he ate of the fruit of the tree. He brought death. The second Adam couldn't find any figs to eat. He did not partake of sin. And that's the illusion that the writer of Hebrews is making when he says this in 4.15. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was in all points tempted just like we are. Here's the difference. Yet without sin. The reason he can help you is because he's not bound to the things you're bound. He was tempted but yet without sin. He knows exactly how it feels, and yet he overcame what you haven't been able to overcome. That's why he can step into your life, and in a moment, he can deliver you. Now, this is what's so amazing. Before we are saved, all that is true of the first Adam is true of us. He sinned, we were sinners. He failed, we failed. Uh, he disobeyed, we disobey. All that is true of the first Adam, it comes down through the bloodline of humanity to us. So before we're saved, everything that is true of the first Adam is true of us. And people say um, things like, well, I, I would never do that. I, I would never sin like that. You don't know what you might be capable of if it had not been for the grace of God coming into your life. But here's the great news. Before you're saved, all that's true of the first Adam is true of you. But after you get saved, all that's true of the second Adam is now true of you. I'm not standing here because I'm righteous. I'm standing here because he's righteous and he made me righteous. I'm not here because I'm holy. I'm here because he's holy and he made me holy. I'm not here because I'm godly. I'm here because he has declared me godly and put his Holy Ghost in me to let me live for him. This is amazing. Now, Paul can't leave this alone. We, we did a series on Romans two or three years ago, and I don't know if the church thought they were in the second half of the Great Tribulation or what. We went a long time, but I was having fun. Romans 5, verse 20, Paul can't leave it alone. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. 
People say, I don't like God's laws. You better love God's laws. We would not know how much trouble we were in if it wasn't for God's law. We wouldn't know we were sinners except for God's law. We could live our lives and end up in eternity in torment in hell and never have known anything about it. But thank God the law of God said, this is wrong, this is right, this pleases God, and we know we failed. So the law entered that the offense might abound. But Paul loves this. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Let me head for a close. When Abel died and Cain buried his younger brother's body in the ground, what happened, it was a transaction in the spirit realm. His innocent blood became his defense attorney in that moment. And it started pleading his case to heaven. I had somebody say to me one time, I don't like that phrase that the elders use, pleading the blood. Sounds like we're begging, you know, we're plead the blood, plead the blood. No, 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 no. It's not begging. It's in the sense of a legal attorney walking into a courtroom with a legal pleading in his briefcase. And just about the time you think that the prosecutor has you pinned to the table and you're headed for eternal punishment... Your defense attorney, Jesus Christ, said, oh, I've got a legal pleading here. I took his sin. That's why when you get in trouble, you need to plead the blood. It's not begging. It's taking authority over the enemy. That's what pleading the blood is. So Abel's blood starts crying out from the ground, and in heaven God said, I can hear that blood speaking. You see, the devil is pretty big and bad and bold. He's kind of terrifying and he's very powerful and he's treacherous and he's really dumb. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8. None of the princes of this world knew the wisdom of God. Had they known what Jesus was going to accomplish on Calvary, they would not for a trillion dollars, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. People say well-meaning things, but they're mistaken. I've heard people say, well, you know, I'm saved because of Jesus' life. You know, Jesus came and he lived and he was a good example and he taught us the Sermon on the Mount and so I'm saved because of Jesus' life. No. In fact, if anything, you're condemned by Jesus' life. You are sinful. He was sinless. You are imperfect. He was perfect. So Jesus' life doesn't save me. What saves me is his death, burial, and resurrection. He gave a sacrifice and he shed his blood. See, here's how it worked with Abel. As long as his blood was inside his body, it didn't talk. But when his blood exited his body and seeped into the ground, all of a sudden, heaven said, wait a minute, I can hear the blood talking. As long as Jesus' blood was in his body, and he was walking around teaching and working miracles and being an incredible example of righteousness, his blood didn't talk for us. It was when his blood was shed and he was lifted up on that cross and his blood came streaming down that old rugged cross. When his blood came out of his body, that's when his blood started talking. 
and the apostles all come together on this point. Peter writes this, For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. That's not how you were uh, came out of your vain conversation. This wasn't received just by tradition from your fathers. Here's how you got in this church. It was by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. I thank God for the blood. The writer of Hebrews says, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place and obtained eternal redemption for us. But maybe my favorite is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders, and he says in Acts 20, you take heed therefore unto yourselves, and take heed to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, and you feed the church of God, because when God wanted a mountain, he just created it. When God wanted a river, he just formed it. But this church, he purchased it with his own blood. You are part of the most valuable thing on this planet in the eyes of heaven, purchased with the blood of God. Hebrews 11. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. Watch. And by it he, being dead, yet speaketh. Now from the time Abel died and his blood was shed, innocent blood, until the writer of Hebrews picks up his pen and writes those words, is roughly 4,000 years. In heaven's economy, innocent human blood is still crying out with a loud voice from the earth 4,000 years after it was shed. Hebrews 12. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, watch, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. <laughs> so if innocent human blood could still be crying out 4,000 years later, and Jesus' blood wasn't just innocent human blood like that of a martyr. That was, Paul refers to it, it said, God purchased the church with his own blood. There was something of divinity and eternity and supernatural power in the blood of Jesus. If Abel's blood could still be crying out 4,000 years later, only innocent human blood, how loud do you think the blood of Jesus is speaking for the church 2,000 years after his crucifixion. That's the blood that saves us and keeps us. Now, this isn't just a little academic lesson. Because, see, for many of us, if the blood hadn't spoken for us, we would not be here this morning. For some of you, the blood got between you and a car wreck. For some of you, the blood stood between you and alcoholism and said, nope, this one's mine. For some of you, the blood stood between you and a life of drug addiction. And when every statistic said you should have been another statistic, the blood got between you and your destiny and said, I've got a purpose for this one. And the blood started speaking for you. Oh, my And then there's this, and I close. <laughs> Cain knew. He was a farmer. He knew if he could sow seed in that earth 
early enough and often enough and have favorable conditions and wait for the rains. He knew beyond, it's the cycle of the farmer. He knew beyond shadow of doubt he would reap a harvest. But when he killed Abel and Abel's blood seeped into the soil of Cain's farm, God said, it's not working anymore for you, Cain. You can sow the same seed, you can sow the same crop, you can have the same rain, but because Abel's blood has entered into this ground, no more will it yield its strength to you. Can I take some of you back a few years? The devil knew if he could get the seed of sin in your life early enough and often enough, he knew if he could get somebody to misuse you or abuse you. He knew if he could get the right friends or the wrong friends in your life and they could lead you astray and tempt you and test you and put you in situations. See, the devil has been waiting for a long time for his harvest. He knew with some of you if he could get that seed in your life when you were 12 years old, 18 years old, 5 years old, 7 years old. He knew if he could attack your mind and tempt you in college, if he could get at you when you were in high school. He knew that if he could get that seed of sin in your life early enough and often enough, he's just been sitting back waiting for some of you for decades. He just said, I'm going to get my harvest. They're going to grow up to be bitter. They're going to grow up to hate everybody. They're going to grow up and be addicted. They won't be able to have a normal marriage. They won't be able to raise kids without abusing them the way they were abused. But what the devil didn't count on is the blood of Jesus Christ entered into this soil and when the blood entered in all of a sudden something shifted and the blood started speaking so the devil can try to attack from every angle but devil the blood covers this ground and the blood speaks for me would you stand to your feet would you lift up your hands right now and would you thank God for the blood out loud with your voice, with your vocabulary. Just thank God for the blood. Oh. Oh. Oh, there is no sin. There is no sickness. There is no dysfunction. There is no bondage. There is no addiction that Jesus' blood cannot heal. His blood still speaks for us. We're going to turn this whole sanctuary and that lobby out there into an altar right now. You don't even need to know the name of the person standing beside you because we were all in that long line of sin. But today, Jesus wants every person in this building, in his line, where the blood flows and speaks and heals and delivers. If it's not too much out of your comfort zone, would you take the hand of the person standing next to you, and would you just lift that hand with your hand right now? And like a choir of uplifted hands and voices, right now, I want you to begin to pray. Right now.
the blood of Jesus Christ, if you'll ask him, he can deliver you from your sin, from your addiction, from your depression, from whatever has been troubling your mind, your home, your marriage, your family. He can deliver you right now. That blood is so powerful and it still speaks today. So right now in the name of Jesus, receive your healing right now in the name of Jesus. Right now in the name of Jesus, receive deliverance in your mind. Right now in the name of Jesus, I speak that addiction is broken and bondage is shattered. Right now in the name of Jesus, you can receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It was paid for by the blood. Oh, pray, church. That's great, tree of life. That's beautiful, people of God. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Oh, my. I'd like you to do one more thing for me, if you would, this morning. We're used to praying with others, beside others. I'm going to ask you, especially if you're standing with a family member, but you don't have to be standing with family. The Bible says he puts the solitary in families. You have a family now. It's right here at Tree of Life. If you're the only person in your family serves God, you have a family here. I'm going to ask you if you would turn around right now and instead of just praying with somebody beside someone, I'm going to ask if you would lay your hand on them and pray for them. There's a difference. I'm going to ask, you may not know what to pray. That's okay. You can just pray that God will bless their home and their family, their children, their marriage, whatever. But I'm going to ask if you turn around and lay your hand. Some of you prayer warriors know exactly where we're going because you can feel the unction of the Holy Ghost in this place. God wants to break some shackles for someone today. So would you turn around right now? Let's turn this whole place into an altar service. And would you lay your hand on somebody? If they're family, that's perfect. But if they're not, that's good too. Just lay your hand on them and pray. The delivering power of the blood is in this room right now. In Jesus' name, receive it. In Jesus' name, receive it right now. Receive your miracle. Receive your healing. Receive your deliverance. In Jesus' name.
back.